Election College, Episode 169, The Supreme Court of the United States. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Hey, Jason, if you've got a problem and nobody else can solve it, or if they solve it a way you don't like, hey, maybe the Supreme Court will hear you. You know, you can always try. It's not a big deal. They're like the most important uh, court in the whole world, but no big deal. Oh, I thought you were going to say Vanilla Ice. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, if there's a problem... Uh, yeah. Yes, you are absolutely correct. The Supreme Court of the United States. You know, the highest federal court. Yeah, that one. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we'll get into what the Supreme Court does and says here in a minute, but how did it come about? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad I asked. The United States Constitution actually established the Supreme Court back in 1789. And if you want to go in and read all about what powers are given to the Supreme Court, you can do that in Article 3 of the Constitution. We'll talk about some of them here, too, but it's, uh, we're, we're going to try and give you a, like a, a broad overview of how the Supreme Court works. Yeah, so let's go back in time a little bit to 1790. It's February. It's a little chilly. It's New York City. And the Supreme Court gets together because, well, Article 3 says you need to get together because we need a Supreme Court, right? And they convene at the Royal Exchange Building over there on Broad Street, and they were there to meet. And John Jay was there, of course. He's the chief justice. He had three associate justices at his side, and there were a ton of people who were there to see them show off their skills. And they were there for a week, and nobody shows up <laughs> because they didn't have any cases to consider. So they're like, hey, how about we come back in September and see if anybody shows up? So everybody goes home, and there you have it. <laughs> so they didn't get a sixth member in until May 12th of 1790, and yeah, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, huh, six members, that means if you got three and three, you're going to have a tie. So at that time, you actually needed a two-thirds majority of the courts to get a an opinion to go your way or against your way or whatever the case was. So uh, that's where it starts out with a quorum of four judges, and also you need four judges to ju- uh, go one way in order for something to pass. So uh, the Constitution doesn't actually specify how many justices must be uh, on the court, but the Judiciary Act of 1789 says, yeah, how about we make it six? And then uh, as we get bigger, Congress just keeps adding and adding. They do um, all the way up to 10 by 1863. Yeah. And in 1863, Salmon Chase, he says, you know what? We need to eliminate some positions here. We need to bring this thing back down to nine. So payroll's too high. Yeah. I mean, we need to watch it, right? We're reconstructing the country. So, or the South, somebody's going to ding us on that. The South (laughs) reconstruction, the South. Anyway, 
Chase is like, okay, let's have this go down to nine. So through attrition, you know, people resigning or dying or whatever, they establish that. And by the time 1869 rolls around, there are nine members of the Supreme Court. This stays the same until this day, but you remember our buddy FDR? Mm -hmm. He tried to do a lot of changes. And Ben, we probably could do about, what, 28.3 podcast episodes on all the initiatives that <laughs> FDR tried to yeah, he had uh, a lot push of stuff through. Going on. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so in 1937, he says, hey, why don't we do a deal where when a justice is 70 and a half years old, because why not? They need that extra six months over 70. Sure. If they decide, eh, I don't want to retire, uh, they could appoint another justice. And this could happen where we have 15 justices sitting on the Supreme Court. And Congress is like, hey, FDR, we know that you're kind of popular and a lot of your stuff is, you know, doing good for the country and all. No. That's not a good idea because you're trying to pack the court and we see through what you're trying to do here, buddy. So no. Yeah. And they were like, Hey, uh, you can't do that. And he goes, okay, fine. How about I'm just the president for forever. And <laughs> I have a lot of opportunities to appoint justices. And so he actually had the opportunity to appoint seven justices uh, and actually elevated one that was already there to chief justice while he was in office. So well, he still got uh, his way in the sense seven of nine, you know, are, are directly appointed by him. I think the only person to have any more would have been, or any more of a percentage, would have been Washington, who kind of started the whole thing. Right. Um, so, yeah. So the constitution, speaking of, of appointments and nominations and all that kind of stuff, the Constitution says that the president, quote, shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court, end quote. So, you know, if if you're president or I'm president, we're probably going to have a, a pretty good tendency to nominate a candidate who, well, thinks and acts and, you know, rules the same way that we would see ourselves ruling. That doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything, but your general principles and, you know, some of your parties, maybe your most important items, um, you would want them to, to be on the same page with you. Uh, obviously, in an ideal world, that none of those things would matter, but we're not in an ideal world. So the Constitution says, yeah, um, you can actually just nominate a justice. Doesn't have to be any certain qualifications. They could be a, a teacher or a plumber or a um, you know, anything really that they want to be. They don't have to be an attorney or a, a judge already. So yeah, as long as the Senate lets them in, go for it. Yeah. And usually that, or at least until the 1920s, was such the case that the president nominates someone, the Senate rubber stamps it and says, go for it, buddy. And there you have it. But in the 1920s, the Senate says, hey, Let's create a committee because that's what the Senate does, right? We enjoy these committees and hearings and so on. So they established the Senate Judiciary Committee, and old Harlan Fiskstone becomes the first nominee who needs 
to appear before the committee. And of course, the Senate, doing what senators do in committee, they start questioning him about some of his ties to Wall Street, and he makes it through, but it starts a long tradition now where you're going to get grilled, and you're going to get grilled pretty hard. Most recently, Robert Bork in 1987 was grilled to the point of, well, not making it into the Supreme Court. And that's actually happened 12 times where the Senate has rejected the Supreme Court nominee from the president. I always have a hard time with those kind of things, Jason, because I like, I, I want to think that our, this is, this is personal commentary, so hope nobody, um, hates me for it. But I want to think that, yeah, our our country's laws are working the way they're supposed to. The multiple branches of government are working the way they're supposed to. But then part of me thinks, is it just partisan politics that, you know, are keeping people who would otherwise be good justices out of office and, and other positions too? Uh, that's hard because, yeah, that's, yeah, our government is working and there are supposed to be checks and balances and and it works that way. But then on the same token, you know that yeah, there's probably been times where, oh, well, you know, he believes something different about this than me. So therefore, I don't I'm not going to vote for him. And they could have been a great justice. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this multiple times, but throughout the history of our country, even the founding fathers couldn't agree totally on what the role of the states were versus the role of the federal government and you have those arguments to this day where good people disagree. And sometimes um, those uh, disagreements get blown way out of proportion and create riots and all kinds of other nasty, terrible, horrible things. It is possible that maybe a, a Supreme Court justice nominee doesn't actually make it to the votes where the where the Senate is going to vote for them. And it's pretty clear that, yeah, the Senate's probably going to reject this person. And that's happened a few times. Well, if that happens, a president can actually withdraw their nomination before the vote starts so that they don't have a rejected nomination and nominate someone else in their place. Uh, if they confirm, if the Senate confirms a nomination, the president can, you know, get some stuff together and send that off to the Department of Justice and all that kind of stuff. It could take, oh, up to two and a half months. Uh, it could take longer than that, too, actually. Uh, but about two and a half months is the average for uh, someone to go from being confirmed to actually taking office and getting to sit in those seats. Hey, Ben, you know, recess appointments, that's like one of the favorite things presidents like to do. Because you can kind of get around Congress. <laughs> Just do whatever you and, want. <laughs> yeah. And such is the case with the Supreme Court. A president can nominate somebody to fill a vacancy temporarily. So presidents do have the authority to make a recess appointment for the Supreme Court. Now, the tenure of a recess appointment can only last until the end of the next Senate session. So it's going to be no more than two years that the recess appointee is going to um, be on the court. This hasn't happened since Eisenhower, and he actually had three 
appointments. Can you imagine? Let's just picture the conference room, right? You got all these justices. <laughs> you got the permanent members. You know, they're like, we're in here for life, buddy. I'm going to have to die before, you know, leaving. And you got this person who was like, hey, it's recess. And I got appointed. And can I get you some coffee or order some pizza for everybody? It's a little awkward. I, I think it would be kind of awkward. <laughs> it's also kind of awkward knowing, like, hey, I mean, I have, like, the best job in the world right now, but in, like, a, a year and a half, I might have nothing. Uh, I'm sure they wouldn't have nothing, but you get my point. Yeah. In uh, 2014, there was a Supreme Court ruling in the National Labor Relations Board versus Noel Canning that actually limited the ability of the president to make recess appointments, though this didn't include the Supreme Court. So uh, they're basically like, yeah, the Senate has to do this kind of stuff. But the Supreme Court, it's one of those that it's um, it's more expected that it'll happen. However, uh, there was, af- after Eisenhower had made those appointments uh, that we talked about uh, and did three of them in a row, the Senate passed this uh, sense of the Senate resolution that, you know what, presidents in the future if you're going to make appointments that are during recesses, try to stick to only doing it for like unusual circumstances because this isn't working for us. We want the power. Right. So all but four presidents have appointed at least one justice. And, um, you know, among those who were unfortunately not able to nominate anyone, uh, you have William Henry Harrison. He died of course, a month after taking office. But John Tyler, he took over Harrison's term, and he made an appointment during that time. Uh, The same thing happened when Zachary Taylor died. Uh, Just about a year and a half after taking office, Millard Fillmore finished that term, and he made a nomination. Andrew Johnson would have been able to appoint a justice, but our buddy Salmon Chase said, we're going to eliminate one of the positions, and guess what, Andrew Johnson, you're not going to be able to nominate anyone. Uh, Jimmy Carter is actually the only president to have been elected and never be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice, and that's after serving at least one full term. So, sorry, Jimmy, you didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. And just to clarify, uh, uh, a Supreme Court justice can serve as long as they want. They can serve until they pass away. They can serve until they're ready to retire or need to resign for whatever reason. So it can be a little bit unpredictable when you're going to get to nominate someone. And that's why certain people have been able to nominate many different justices and other people have been able to nominate very, very few. So from almost like every office in the United States, uh, the court starts out with a bunch of old white Protestant dudes. And uh, as a hopefully future uh, old white Protestant dude, um, I don't have anything wrong with old white Protestant dudes, but I do think that it's great to have a lot of diversity. And uh, we've had uh, many different Protestants, a lot of different other denominations of Christianity and uh, Judaism uh, as well. Uh, we've had Catholic justices, uh, and right now we're in a, a position where 
This is one of the first times in the court's history where we haven't had any Protestants on board. Also, as far as diversity, we have uh, you know racial diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity. Uh, a lot of a lot of diversity has come about in the last oh, 40, 50 years. Uh, Thurgood Marshall was the first African American justice, and that was back in eighteen or I'm sorry, nineteen sixty seven. And you can only imagine it's the nineteen sixties. Um, race relations in the United States are crazy. Civil rights are you know, we're they're fighting for civil rights all the time. And how empowering it would be to be the first African American uh, to be on the highest court of the land. Um, you can imagine that was probably quite a momentous occasion. I wasn't around for that, but I'm sure it was great. Yeah. Uh, it is an interesting time that we live in where we have three retired Supreme Court justices and kind of interesting. Um, the chief justice can sometimes call on these retired justices and say, hey, uh, would you mind helping out with uh, one of the with one of the lower courts, like the United States Court of Appeals, um, do you want to be about, a substitute teacher today? <laughs> yeah, why don't you why don't you come over, <laughs> and uh, occasion, on occasion that will actually happen. So, on a personal note, um, Ben, for many of our listeners, they knew that we had the opportunity to visit the Supreme Court in the past year, and wow, what an opportunity that was. Uh, for me, it was one of those instances where I've never seen that many famous people in such close proximity all at the same time. You know, you go to a sporting event, yeah, you'll see several all-star athletes or, you know, you'll see something. You'll see one or two people. But in the case of the Supreme Court, oh my goodness, there you are. And it was really one of my favorite memories I think I'll ever have. Yeah. Just to continue that uh, personal note, if you have never gone to the Supreme Court, first of all, and you have the opportunity, you should. Uh, second of all, you can go in for just a few minutes. And uh, when you go in, it, I almost felt like it was going to be this giant chamber where, you know, it was like in, in future movies that, you know, there's this um, giant reckoning of all things. And it's actually just a really quaint small courtroom where you walk in and you're at eye level with the justices as they're sitting at the bench you're at eye level with them and it's a pretty small room um i would hesitate to think there's more than about 250 seats in the room uh, and that's with everybody packed in really tight and it's just a very humble place where very important things happen and i just think that's a you know there's nothing the building itself is immaculate. The room itself is very humble. And I think that it was probably intentional to convey that um, this is this is important, but it's not, um, we're not better than you. We're just people who are interpreting laws as they should be. Yeah. And for those of you who have never been to Washington or maybe just didn't recognize it, the Supreme Court is just across the street from the Capitol building. And it was built in the mid thirties. Kind of interesting because uh, William Howard Taft, and we all know that he was the president and he always wanted to be the chief justice or at least a justice. And he finally had that opportunity as an ex-president. 
And he had a lot to do with uh, the design and the construction of the building, even though he wasn't able to serve in that that building. But it, from an architectural standpoint, it's phenomenal. And it actually is in that realm where the architect of the U.S. Capitol has um, oversight of that building. Uh, interestingly enough, too, about the Supreme Court building is that it has its own police force, which is kind of wild. It is kind of understandable, wild. but pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, so we could talk about the Supreme Court probably for episodes and episodes and episodes, and we may talk about it more in the future, but we just kind of want to give you a brief overview about how things work and what goes on and the history of it. If you want to uh, interact with us more and you want to support us in our election college endeavors, you can go over to our Patreon page and pledge there for as little as 11 cents an episode, uh, which is like a dollar a month, which really helps us out. It's electioncollege.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we really do appreciate that. We have opportunities for you to get additional episodes per month and um, you won't be sorry. Yeah. And of course, we do the happy dance every time we get a good rating and review in iTunes. If you would take the 73.6 seconds that it takes to leave a rating and review, we certainly would appreciate it. Just have, head over to electioncollege.com slash review. And as always, we are on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at election college. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.